don't know everything, but uh, all the classic signals and signs of a heart attack were certainly there. And uh, he was even given a nitroglycerin tablet uh, at one point, which caused the pain to subside right away. The heart began to be able to get blood out, apparently, and in. Uh, and that's what they do a lot of times with people who have heart problems or heart attacks. Uh, so the pain got so unbearable, he wasn't going in for treatment of any kind, he said, but he decided to go in and see if he could get somebody to prescribe him some pain medicine <laughs> that would help alleviate that pain. So uh, he got in there, and of course they check your vitals and do blood work and so on to see if they can figure out what's going on. And he was just telling him he had tennis elbow, uh, which was causing all this pain and so on. Well, they went through and did the tests, and they came back and told him he likely had a pinched nerve in his neck. And the blood work did not show any signs of a heart attack. Got a question for you. Is it possible that God healed the heart attack and all the symptoms and the residual signals in the blood that would have showed that there had been such a thing. And uh, turns out that he needed some adjustment in his neck and back. Uh, the pain began... Oh, they also gave him a nitroglycerin tablet while he was at the hospital because the pain had become very severe. But it had no effect on the pain. The one taken couple, three days earlier, had stopped the pain, and the one they gave him there had no effect whatsoever, which if it were heart, uh, in the first time, it did have a great effect, and then when they was at the hospital, it had no effect. So if there were a heart attack there, and the nitroglycerin is another indicator that perhaps it was, uh, it had been healed by the time he got there. So when it was all said and done, they did some tests and gave him some painkiller, which is what he was there for, and he came home with his painkiller. But the pain began to subside. He's not now taking the painkiller. He went to a chiropractor and had an adjustment, and things are better. So I don't want to discount at all the very great possibility that God may have preserved his life for future use, and that God did intervene and did show mercy. Uh, he does that sometimes. So, uh, I'm feeling thankful, frankly, that he's still among us after seeing what he was going through and the reactions that he had and how it was affecting him. Also, it's interesting that uh, we had a I'll say at least potential settlement of a court case that we've been having here over the property and so on over the last year and a half or so. Uh, agreements were made and uh, the paperwork has been now drawn up by attorneys and all it lacks at this point is signatures. So apparently a settlement has been reached unless uh, somebody throws a monkey wrench in it at the last moment, but uh, I think it's probably something that uh, can be handled by both sides here. <laughs> My attorney, I'll, I'll, I'll share at least this little anecdote with you. He said, a great settlement of a court case 
is when both parties go away totally happy having achieved everything they wanted. And he said, I may have one or two of those. He hasn't yet. I may have one or two of those in my entire career where everybody's happy. He said, a good settlement is where everybody goes away unhappy. They may have gotten partially what they wanted, but they didn't get everything they wanted. And rarely do you in court. Then a, a bad settlement is one where one party goes away completely happy and the other one goes away completely unhappy <laughs> because no compromise was reached. Uh, and I thought he encapsulated the court system and so on pretty well with that little analogy. Uh, to reach a settlement, there has to be compromise on both sides because not everybody can go away deliriously happy. That's just the way it is. So... Uh, it's interesting to me, and I might, if I think of it, touch on this later in the sermon. Uh, it happened on the first day of the sixth month, right after the new moon. Well, it was actually, the settlement was being worked out as the sun went into eclipse, the sun, moon, and earth, on that day is when the settlement was being worked out. So at the conjunction of the new moon, the settlement came. Now, interestingly, Haggai began to get his message from God on the first day of the sixth month. And these terms were all pretty well worked out by the next day, which was the first day of the sixth month. And perhaps it opens up some opportunity uh, for resolving some issues here that might allow ultimately God to begin to gather people because I felt for a long time there's no way he could gather people here when there's so much confusion and war and fighting and strife. Uh, so that has to be resolved and I think that the beginnings of resolving that at least occurred on the first day of the sixth month when Haggai began to speak his message of peace and gathering and building. So, for what that's worth. Now let's get on back to <clears throat> Ezekiel 4. I covered last week more of an emphasis in chapter uh, 3, uh, the situation within the church and the situation right here and how it fits it uh, exactly. Uh, now in chapter 4, it seems to turn more from the church to the nation itself. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about the meaning of the events of chapter 4. You might recall Ezekiel was instructed to lay on his, left, his right side for 390 days and then on his left side for 40 days uh, and that this was a sign to Israel. I went to the commentaries earlier this morning to see if they had any sense of what was going on here and it was all just gobbledygook they had no grasp or understanding of anything <clears throat> in terms of prophecy and kind of muddled up even history on it but I, I believe that God gave me some daily bread this morning and I began to understand uh, the meaning of this chapter and the next one after it uh, in a way that I never had before when I went through Ezekiel a few years ago, I had no, no real grasp of what this was talking about. 
but I think it became clear today and we will have a much better understanding uh, in about an hour from now. But let's start into it and comment more as we go. So he's talking about a rebellious house, end of chapter 3, which depicts both the church and the nation. So he says, You also, son of man, take you a tile, or like a brick, uh, a clay tablet, if you will, and lay it before you, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a type of uh, Israel and of Judah. Uh, all through the Bible, it's even a type of the church there in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. So when he says against Jerusalem, he's talking about the capital city, that which recognizes the nation. We do the same thing in our language today. The world, the nations of the world, when referring to the United States, often just refer to Washington, because Washington is the capital and the nerve center of the United States, well, along with New York, but uh, it, it represents the nation as its capital. So the same was true then. They would refer to Jerusalem as the capital of the nation. So it can be all-inclusive of the nation, or nations in this case, all the tribes of Israel, but just mention it and talk of it as Jerusalem. <clears throat> and we'll see later on that uh, this applies to the whole nation. So he was to uh, draw a picture on this tile that depicted the city. Then he says to lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, and set a battering ram against it round about. So these are the uh, units that an invading nation would use to uh, encompass a walled city and to destroy it. So he was to have there before him this tile of the city, and then he was to... It's like a kid with his Tonka toys. You're supposed to build all this stuff in microcosm that is a picture or a type of the real bigger city. Because this was something that was to be assigned to the whole city and to the whole nation... But he was to do it like drawing a picture and then setting up these uh, uh, weapons of battle around it. So he says, Then (coughs) take to you an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between you and the city and set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. This shall be assigned to the house of Israel." So this plate of iron was to be laid there between his body and his little replica of the city of Jerusalem. And it was to represent enemies that would come against it. It was to represent uh, a substantial barrier, if you will, an iron barrier uh, between Ezekiel and the city. And neither side would want to back down. (laughs) Uh, But there was this iron between them. And also, uh, it was a piece of iron between Ezekiel and the city. 
Now, the commentaries mentioned how neither side would want to back down, but I think in a spiritual sense here, what God was trying to get across was Ezekiel, there's a wall of iron between you and the people that you're trying to talk to. There's a barrier there that cannot be crossed. It cannot be breached. It's, it's made of iron. Remember a little earlier last week we talked about how the people would have very hard heads, but God had given Ezekiel a head of flint that would be harder than theirs. And I think that what is being depicted here uh, speaks of that, that there would be a barrier between the message and the sign that Ezekiel was uh, given here to show them and their apprehension and acceptance of it. So, but this was to be assigned to them, just as earlier uh, his hard head against their hard head was a sign of non-repentance. So then is when he tells them, or tells him, Lie you also upon your left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. I think I reversed this a minute ago. According uh, to the number of the days, you shall lie upon it, you shall bear their iniquity. So he was to lay on his left side for a period of days here, and it would be a sign of the iniquity of the city and of Israel. So he's giving us a clue here what this is about. That they had been iniquitous, they had been disobedient to God and rebellious, as we saw in chapter 3, and now him lying on his side was a sign of iniquity. So, he says then, For I have laid upon you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days, so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So, three hundred and ninety days is significant here, in that each one of those days spoke of the iniquity of Israel. And when you have accomplished them, lie again on your right side, and you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Forty days. So 390 for Israel, 40 for Judah. Why that? Why those numbers? They equal 430 altogether. Uh, Israel represented more tribes, more population, and I think we shall see that in the modern history of the nation of Ephraim, and thereby of Israel as a type, because Ephraim is the lead nation, uh, there in Jeremiah 31, God said that he had changed it so that Ephraim was the firstborn. Changed the birth order. So Israel now is represented by Ephraim, which is this country. Uh, and this portrayal... Uh, would be involved in Ephraim, as we shall very clearly see. Then Judah was one tribe and less populated, but uh, is also included here with another 40 days, and that may represent the church as well. Uh, if Christ returns in 2026, which uh, 
seems to be the time, considering the Jubilee, when he would be scheduled to return. From 1986, when Herbert Armstrong died, to 2026 is 40 years, in which the church essentially has wandered in confusion. Uh, It is now, after 30 years, over 30 years, but it will have been 40 years by the time 2026 rolls around. And Judah then might represent, in that sense, uh, the church, spiritual Judah, or spiritual Israel. They did wander 40 years in the wilderness as well, you know, and their carcasses died there uh, and laid there. They were not able to go into the promised land. Well, going into the promised land, spiritually speaking, in the kingdom of God, is slated for the 2026-2027 year according to Christ's declaration of the Jubilee there in Luke. So, there is a tie-in here already. Now, it's 430 years. Previously, when I've read this, I've thought, well, there's an obvious tie-in between the 430 years that they were in the land of Mitzrayim and slavery and this. But what is the tie-in? And I kind of surmise that, well, that was a time of slavery uh, in 430 years in the land of Mitzrayim or the land of Ham, which will become significant by the end of this sermon, uh, because the Mitzrayimites were essentially black. There was some Assyrian uh, influence there as well, may have, been, may have been some kind of <coughs> alliance or pact between uh, Mitzrayim and Assyria, because Isaiah 52 indicates that they were oppressed by the Assyrian in the land of Egypt or Mitzrayim as well. So, I had thought, well, from the time that America was first instituted, have we been in a form of slavery during this entire 430 years of our existence since the first permanent colony? Uh, That was the only way I could kind of compare the two. But I don't think that is the correct analogy. Now, in one sense, we've been in a soft captivity because... Soon after arriving here, those colonists who came began to depart from the Bible, began to depart from some of the things some of them understood when they first got here, and wound up creating a Gentile government uh, with Roman and Greek columns all through Washington, D.C. So we have been, in a sense, what is called a nation of freedom and liberty, and yet we have been bound by the government of Babylon, and indeed have morphed into the modern Babylon, as Revelation 18, Jeremiah 50, and 51 clearly indicate. And I don't have time to go into all that again right now. There's a whole series of sermons about it. (coughs) So in one sense, there may be a certain amount of truth to that, but I don't think it's the major thing that God is talking about. Let's go on here a little bit. Uh, He's lay on his other side for 40 days. I have appointed you each day for a year. Now, Numbers 14.34 shows that you can have a day as a year. Uh, There also is indication a a year can represent, I mean, a day can represent a thousand years, which we understand that the the week that we observe, seven-day week, is uh, a representation of 
a thousand years each for a seven thousand year plan of God. But here it's clearly stated that each day, 430 in total, uh, represent a year. So we have here a depiction of 430 years. Okay? When did this happen? Not in history. Judah was in captivity there where Ezekiel was on the river of Kibar for roughly 70 years, not 430 years. So Israel has not gone into a captivity like they were in Exodus ever since. So, what does this mean? What 430 years is it talking about? Let's move on. It's got to fit somewhere, doesn't it? Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem over a period of 430 years is the meaning hereof. It only lasted 430 days. Ezekiel was not going to live 430 years. So God depicted it in days, but he says it, it, its meaning is of years. Don't lose the, the, that thought. So set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. Now, what does your arm uncovered mean? Isaiah 52, uh, I think verse, is it verse 10, uh, talks about how God will reveal His arm. And there, it's speaking of His strength, His power. <laughs> In that particular... <clears throat> verse, it is his arm of strength for good. I think we shall see in this one, he's uncovering the muscle of his arm to depict evil that shall come. So, an arm, your strength, can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. And it is depicted both ways in the Bible. We shall see that this time, it is depicted of revealing the power to do Horrible things. But that's what uncovering the arm means. And you shall prophesy against it. So he shows here that the power of God's arm will be used against Jerusalem. So what Ezekiel is depicting here is not coming out of slavery or bad times. It depicts the power of God to create bad times henceforth thereafter that 300 or that 430 years will depict something in the history of Israel here at the end time that will end in trouble it's not talking about the trouble during it's talking about the sins which will cause the trouble a siege against it to destroy it because of the iniquity. So the siege is about iniquity, and it is about destruction because of iniquity. We've already seen that in the context. Verse 8, And behold, I will lay bands upon you, and you shall not turn you from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. So this is something where he was going to be held down. He was to be kept there. That this prophecy cannot be denied. It cannot be interrupted. It will come to pass. 
<clears throat> it's like bands of iron. <laughs> Nothing will stop this. Now, Jeremiah even tells us not to pray for this nation because it will not repent. We also find in Jeremiah 50, I think it's 50, it might be 51, where it talks about how we would save this country if we could, but we cannot. And that the people who have been coming here are going to run home where they came from when this hits because it's going to be so bad they don't want to live the American nightmare instead of dream. So, this is ironclad. This is going to happen. It cannot be interrupted. Take you also to you wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and fitches or spelt and put them in one vessel and make you bread thereof according to the number of the days that you shall lie upon your side. 390 days shall you eat thereof. Now, he wasn't given lots of food. It was, this was to be in one vessel. And he's, this is over a year now. <laughs> and your food, which you shall eat, shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time shall you eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, not as much as you want, but, but by measure. The sixth part of a hen, from time to time shall you drink. And you shall eat it as barley cakes, and you shall bake it with dung that comes out of man in their sight. I don't know that there's anything more repulsive to us than human dung. Uh, smells, it's, it's pretty bad stuff. Now, the Eternal said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So what he is doing here depicts a time when God will drive them out, they will go into the captivity of the Gentiles, they will not eat what they want, but eat a little bit and drink a little bit, a time of famine, which we'll read about in a little bit. And they will be driven out of their own land into a Gentile land, where they will eat barely enough to keep them alive as slaves. Then said I, O Lord God, can God be entreated or cannot God be entreated at times? Behold, my soul has not been polluted, for from my youth up even till now have I not eaten of that which dies of itself or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. So Ezekiel was very familiar with the laws of clean and unclean, of defilement and so on, and a human being is an unclean beast. We don't have cloven hooves and chew the cud. So, we are unclean in terms of animals in the first place. And if you think we're unclean, that which comes forth from us is really filthy. So he said, I, I, I just can't do this, God. Then he said to me, Lo, I've given you cow's dung for man's dung, and you shall prepare your bread with it. Cow's dung is not nearly as smelly as uh, man dung. Horse dung can almost be pleasant to the nose. Uh, cow is not so much, but human is the worst. 
So God said, all right, Ezekiel, I'll not make you do anything unclean. Get it? Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Isaiah 52, again, about verse 11 or so, 12, wherever it is there. So God allowed him not to do an unclean act, which he had habitually not done throughout his life. But he was to depict the uncleanness and the sin of Israel in so doing this chore. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment, that they may want bread and water, and be astonished one with another. What happened to us? What's happened to our nation? What's happened to all of our food? We used to have lots of food and water. We were a blessed nation. Now we don't have anything to eat and drink. So they'll be astonished by all this. And consume away for their iniquity. He goes into this in more detail in the next chapter. But before there, before we go there, let's consider some things. Uh, We'll be back to Ezekiel 4. But let's go to Genesis 15. And let's get some background about 430 years. Genesis 15. This will begin to help us understand. Now here, God is uh, giving promises to Abraham. And Abraham saying, hey, I got no kids. How can, how can I have people after me? And he told him he would have a child of his own flesh and so on. And here he was way past the time that that supposedly could happen. <coughs> but anyway, uh, verse 12, Abraham went into a deep sleep, and a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Very, very dark. And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Now he rounds it off to fourteen. I mean to 400, but the actual number we'll find later was 430 years to the day. We round things off uh, that way as well. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. So they were going to go into captivity for 430 years, and they were to come out with great riches. We can read about that in Exodus. Now, I think just up here, I, I may have gone past it. Uh, yeah, verse 7. Uh, Abraham had believed God about having a child. It says he believed in the Lord, verse 6, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said to him, I am the eternal God that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. So where this was going on was in the land that Abram was to inherit. Okay? There are two different places spoken of in this chapter. The land where they were, that he would inherit, and this other land where they would go in as a stranger, not their land. <coughs> oh. 
and shall afflict them 430 years. Or 400 years, it says here. So they were to leave the land that God was promising Abraham and go into Mitzrayim, as we now know, for 430 years, then come out with great substance. But we will also find here that God promised them the land that he therein was. So there's a tie-in between the promised land and the land that they would go to for 430 years. And if he gave it to them, they would then come back to that land, right? If you have been promised this land, and then you were taken from it for 430 years, do not the Scriptures indicate that they would go back to it when the 430 years were at an end? Yeah, they crossed the Red Sea, they were headed for it. And then they rebelled, and they wandered 40 years until all their carcasses died and their children went in, save Joshua and Caleb, who survived the 40 years. Then they went back in. So, it shows here a time of captivity, a time of release, a time to go back to the land that God had promised Abraham here in Genesis 15. So, keep that in mind. Now let's go to Exodus 12. This will all come together in a bit. Exodus 12. And here is where they were coming out of the land of Mitzrayim, or the land of Ham, as the Psalms describe in several different verses. Ham, or the descendants of, uh, of Ham, who was a black man. So we've come to understand that the Mitzrayimites that the Israelites were enslaved to were Hamites. They were, they were black people. Now, there may have been others mixed in with them, but essentially it was the land of Ham, not the land of Assyria or some other land. So here in chapter 12, let's go down to uh, about 40, I want. Uh, they'd been thrust out of Mitzrayim in verse 39. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Mitzrayim was 430 years. And it came to pass... At the end of the 430 years, even to the selfsame day, Passover day, or the night of Passover actually, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Eternal went out from the land of Mitzrayim, a night to be much observed. So they left right after midnight, having taken the Passover that evening. Jacob had originally come to that land to be with Joseph and had entered into the land on the Passover time. And it was the Passover when they came out 430 years later. So now we see that they had come out of the Promised Land and gone into Mitzrayim where they stayed 430 years. Then they were brought out of there from the slavery that they had been in. Now let's go to Acts 7. Acts 7. Now, here is the sermon that Stephen gave, which caused him to be stoned at the end of it. But let's pick it up here. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? 
Stephen had been telling the story of Israel. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharan. So God had come to him and told him to get up and go to a place I will show you, remember? And he said to him, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and come into the land which I shall show you. Now that's where he was in Genesis 15 when God told him he would have a child and he believed him and then he said he would give him that land as the promised land. So Stephen's rehearsing this. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharan, and from there, that might be Iran, <clears throat> and from there, because the second cradle of civilization, I do believe, was in Mesopotamia. Uh, the ark floated from this land over there, and it started there, and then Abraham came over here later. And, it, and from there, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. So he was taken and shown by God the promised land. And Stephen was talking to the Jewish leadership here in the promised land. Now I think we've come to understand that that land is here in America. Where Abram was and where we now indwell. And that's where these Jews were in the original city of Jerusalem. Now, that is a big statement, but there are sermons and sermons to show that. But let's move on. Although we will find that this this prophecy culminates, this whole thing that we're talking about in Ezekiel, right here. And I think that will become abundantly clear. I don't mean right here in cane beds, I mean in this nation. Anyway, and he gave him not inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. So the land that was promised as the promised land uh, would come as a possession to Abram's children, to his seed. That would be us. And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land. They were taken to Mitzrayim. And that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. Now he judged them to a point at the Red Sea. And he judged them by the plagues that came upon them. And the Mitzriamite or the Hamitic empire of that day was essentially destroyed. But peoples survived from it. And I think that this is a more far-reaching prophecy than that. Uh, We will find that those who enslaved us in a more modern time have turned around and enslaved them. More to that story as we go on. What goes around comes around. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. 
Now let's focus on that a minute. The nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, says God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. So they were to go back to the land of promise. All right. Did Israel ever come back to the land of promise other than at the time when Joshua brought them back into the land after the 40 years of wandering? That was when they came back. But they got driven out of there, didn't they? They didn't do what God said there, and they were taken into captivity. And they were in a 70-year captivity when Ezekiel was writing. But there was no 430 years involved, was there? 70 years. All right, let's move on uh, to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Pick it up in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, which we just rehearsed in Genesis 15. He says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed which is Christ. So ultimately he was saying the seed of Abraham, and only the seed of Abraham, down through Christ, not anywhere else. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot, be, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, what can we derive from what is being said right here? When did God deliver the law to Israel? After the 430 years were done. After they'd been in captivity. Now, we know that the law of God was in effect with Adam and Eve, and thereafter, and even Cain and Abel understood some of the laws of God. And they understood murder, and they understood stealing, and all those things prior to going into captivity. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived by the precepts, the laws, the ways of God. But they had completely lost it in Mitzrayim, had they not. When they were told they needed to worship God, they said, which one? There are lots of gods. They had forgotten the true God of Israel. So when God brought them out, what did he do? He said, you're going to serve me and obey me. Now I'm going to give you my law. And Moses went up on the mountain, and God inscribed it in the rocks, and Moses came down the mountain, and they weren't obeying, so he went back up, and he got it inscribed again, and came down, and this time it was there. But I think there's an awful lot of symbolism there in how they immediately departed from God so quickly. And God had to emphasize it by giving that law again, because it didn't take, if you will. So here we find that they had been in slavery for 430 years, 
And at the end of that 430 years, they were given the law of God. Now, I'm going to propose to you that what is happening right now in this country, and has been happening for now 430 years, is just the opposite of what occurred in Mitzrayim. The 430 years still applies, but how it applies is different. There, they came into Mitzrayim and went into slavery. 430 years later, they were delivered from slavery. Right? Now, in Ezekiel 4, Ezekiel is said to typify 430 years in 430 days, but to typify 430 years. Now, in this case, they had been sinning for 430 years because we read the siege was about their sins. Now, what happens at the end of this 430 years? We've already seen that he was to have limited bread and water, and that at the end of that story, end of chapter 4, that Israel would go into famine and pestilence. Ezekiel 5 confirms, reiterates, and empowers that, as we'll get to maybe today. So, the duration of the 430 years was different than the duration of the 430 years here at the end time. This 430 years can only apply to the end time because it hasn't happened anywhere in the history of Israel since the captivity in Mitzrayim. <coughs> it was a shorter captivity in Nebuchadnezzar's day, 70 years. There is no commensurate 430 years anywhere in the history of Israel since coming out of Mitzrayim. If there is, find it. It ain't there. So it has to be something that has to do with today. It has to occur, because it's there. It was a type, it was a typification of what would happen to Israel. Now, where are we going to find another 430-year period? Is it going to start next week, or next year? I don't think we've got 430 years before Christ is here. Church won't survive, nation won't survive, world won't survive that long. We're almost at the point where we, well, we are at the point we could destroy all life. And God says unless He intervenes that that will happen. So, we're, we're at the end of this story, folks. So, when is this going to apply? How can it be? And how can it be in reverse of what we read about Mitzrayim being in captivity 430 and then being released? Now, let's consider America. They, the historians use 1607 as the time when the first permanent colony was made in the area of the United States. Uh, Vikings came over earlier, 11, 1200s. Uh, there's, they even established some colonies in Greenland and in Nova Scotia and so on that did not last. And then there's the story of Roanoke. 
The historians do not know for sure what happened there. But in July 22nd of 1585, uh, a contingent of ships came from Great Britain and landed at uh, the area of Roanoke, North Carolina. They established a colony there, and then the ships left, went back to England, and when they came back, they couldn't find any traces where they had left those people. Now, they had arranged some pre-arranged signals, and I've gone over this before, where if they were uh, under siege or going to be killed, they would leave a cross on the tree, as I recall the story. When they got back, uh, there was no cross, and they had, they had inscribed a place, I think, as I recall. Was it Roanoke? I, I, I forget now the name of the place that they, were to de- that they described. But those in those ships uh, encountered some bad weather, and they decided not to even search for those settlers. They just left. And the speculation is that they had maybe gotten involved with some Indians and moved inland. Now, if you're on the coast of North Carolina, you're very close to uh, Virginia and North Carolina, right? Those states abut each other. And right off the coast, there's lots of islands and Chesapeake Bay and all that uh, broken up coastline on the coast right there along North Carolina and Virginia. Now, that's going to play into this, I think. So they do not know for sure what happened to that Roanoke colony, but the historians seem to indicate that they may very well have survived. Now, if you fast forward to 1607, that's 20 years later. Okay? All right, let's count from 1585, when the Roanoke colony was established, 430 years. That brings you to the summer of 2017. 430 years from the time it was established, July 22nd, 1585. Now, if you take start it 20 years later, in 1607 at Plymouth, that puts it 20 years later. Instead of 2017, it would be 2037. No, no, 17. Yeah, for 2017, 2027, 2037. 20 years later. So if you add 430 to 1607, uh, we're looking at another 20 years before that 430 is up currently. And I believe Christ will be here before then. And that is only the beginning of the story, the end of the 430, as we shall see. It portrayed the sins of Israel and how they would then be taken into captivity and have famine, and disease, and the sword in Ezekiel 5. So that is only the beginning of Jacob's trouble at the end of 430 years, right? And if we got to wait another 20 years from now to the beginning of Jacob's troubles, 
you and I are going to be dead and gone and there will be no old men who still survive who saw the first temple in its glory under Herbert Armstrong to compare <coughs> the glory of the latter temple under the two witnesses. Too late. 1607 can't be the starting point. I think we shall see fairly clearly here that Roanoke was the point that God began to count the 430 years. Now, just the opposite is true of what has happened here. When those settlers came from England, what did they have? In their bags, they had the law of God. They had the Bible. The, the English common law is based on biblical law. American law was formulated and designed according to English common law. So English law is based on the Bible. American law from the very beginning is based on the Bible. So we came here to get away from the oppression in England to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as it was later termed. We came here for freedom and liberty. Took some time to get out from under England, uh, about 175 years later, before we actually got our true freedom. But we are still being here had a lot more freedom than the people had in England when they were being severely oppressed and going to debtor's prison and all that stuff. So there was a <clears throat> much greater freedom as soon as the people landed and settled here than there had ever been in England uh, for the poor and oppressed. So this nation started out with a return to the promised land and the law of God in hand when they arrived. Now, the 430 years of Ezekiel depicted not slavery. It depicted a free people who were sinning. And at the end of the 430, the siege meant they would go into famine and pestilence and war and be taken captive. The end of the 430 in Egypt was deliverance. The end of 430 at the end is destruction and slavery. We have not been in captivity these 430 years, except we have ourselves gone into the sin of Satan and the world. We have voluntarily become Babylon. We have not been oppressed. We have been the oppressors. From our very beginning. Well, sometime after. But what did we do? Did I say earlier, what goes around comes around? We had been put into the slavery of Mitzrayim to the black race, the tribes of Ham, as Psalms clearly points out. And we escaped that slavery after 430 years. So, we came here and were given freedom and liberty and every opportunity to obey God. 
Some of those who came over at the very beginning were keeping the Sabbath. They were keeping the holy days. They were not keeping Christmas and Easter. They knew something of the truth of God. We came here to be a free people to worship God is the reason those settlers came here. What did we do? We imported the children of Ham who had enslaved us and we enslaved them. Now, what had gone around to them came around to them again. But this time, instead of being the oppressed, we were the oppressors. We sold the children and wives or husbands of black slaves to whoever would pay the price that was wanted. That is our history, like it or not. We became slave owners. Now, our founding fathers is, is being rehearsed in our history right now in this country. We're slave owners. Thomas Jefferson was. George Washington was. Lincoln somewhat went along with the idea. Jefferson was one of the primary founders and document writers of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and the very things that we have lived by in this country until recently. When a president called it just a, I won't say it, another piece of paper. Thomas Jefferson was one of the main founders of this nation as we have known it, and George Washington. What is happening in our nation right now, and when did it start? It started after July 22, 2017. It started truly in Charlottesville, Virginia. When they had a demonstration, and a lady killed... And it was after that that they began tearing down the symbols of slavery in this country. The statues of Robert E. Lee right there in Charlottesville. All the statues around the country that depict anything that had to do with the slavery that we put the black people in, the sons of Ham in this country, are being torn down and it didn't start until after July 22nd, and it started in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was the home of Thomas Jefferson. And what other president? John Adams, I think. But it started in Thomas Jefferson's hometown. He commuted from there to Washington. That's where Mount Vernon was. It's where he had his black mistress and had children by her as the story goes in history. Why did it start in Charlottesville, Virginia? Could have been a lot of different places. But that's where it started. Now, the attack is worsening, or getting better, however you want to put it. Now they're talking about bringing down every monument that had anything to do with the South, or slavery, or what we had done to oppress black people.
They're even talking about blowing up Mount Rushmore that has Washington and uh, Jefferson and Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, who was somewhat sympathetic, on it. And is it Stone Mountain in Georgia, which also has some of the Confederate leaders? They're talking about blowing it up, too. This didn't happen ten years ago. It didn't happen a year ago. It happened right after 430 years of the Roanoke Colony this summer, after July 22nd. We're still in August. This happened almost immediately after 430 years. Did it not? Now let's pursue it a little further. Charlottesville is named after the Princess Charlotte of German ancestry, who later married King George III and became the consort of the king or the queen of England. <clears throat> so, Charlottesville was named after her. Charlotte, North Carolina is nearby. It also was named after the same princess. It's called the Queen City. That's its nickname, is the Queen City. She was Charlotte of Mecklenburg. Charlotte, North Carolina is in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. So it was all named after the Queen of England. It's Charlotte now has become the leading homosexual uh, city between New York and Miami. The Queen City, if you will. So there's a double-edged sword there, named after the Queen of England and also now known for its uh, homosexuality. Now, why didn't this start in Oregon? Where was Roanoke Colony? Roanoke Colony was on the coast of North Carolina. The surmising they have done is that those people who were on the coast moved inland. If they moved inland, they moved in toward Charlotte, North Carolina, or possibly a little north toward Charlottesburg, Virginia. Charlottesville, I mean. Who knows exactly where they went? Nobody knows. <clears throat> but I find it quite ironic that the Roanoke Colony, 430 years later, had a, an uprising against the South and slavery right there within a very short distance of where that Roanoke Colony was established. And it wasn't in Jonesville. It was in Charlottesville. Charlotte and Charlottesville are named after the Queen of England. And it was the Queen and the King of England that those settlers were trying to get away from. I find it also interesting that there are two, at least two, headquarters of Church of God splinters in Charlotte, North Carolina today. Uh, living Church of God has their headquarters there, one of the larger ones. 
Church of the Great God is there, was established there. It has the same name as mentioned in Ezra, the house of the great God or the church of the great God. And I think probably is going to play quite a significant role before this is all over in the history of the church. Now, if that one is the one God uses to start the restoration as opposed to the destruction, it's in the very same area of Roanoke and in the very same area of where this tearing down of statues also began. Is that coincidence? The seeds, well not the seeds, but the beginning of the destruction of this country began 430 years after Roanoke was established. The actual teardown. Now there have been people who have... uh, burned Confederate flags and American flags over the years. But this started a movement which is growing by the moment that is leading to another civil war. Not exactly the North against the South, but the left against the right. And it is a race war. I kid you not. They want all white people dead. The blacks do, the browns do, the Muslims do. That's what this is all about. It is about the destruction of Israel by all the Gentile races. We will soon be attacked by a coalition of Gentile peoples who will destroy this country. But first, Jeremiah 50 and 51 say, we're going to have a civil war. It has started. It hasn't reached the peak of violence yet. But they're tearing down statues of the founders of this country who were also racist slave owners. Now we, as whites, might recoil from this thinking they shouldn't be tearing those down, and a majority of Americans feel that way, about 60% according to one poll. Now I ask you, have we departed from the God who allowed us to come into this land of Ephraim, this promised land, and had everything that we could possibly want or need right here? And we imported slaves and oppressed them, we came here for freedom for ourselves and then we began to oppress people. That blood is on our head, white folks. I don't care what race you are. This is history. This is the history of the Bible. This is the history of Israel being made slaves for 430 years. It's the history of a nation who was given liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this land, and we started screwing up from the very beginning and did to the Hamites what they had done to us. We are blood guilty. We deserve what the Gentiles are about to do to us. 
God said, I am the one doing it. He is the one who pronounced this siege on Jerusalem in Ezekiel 4. And at the end of the time, this nation and the other nations of Israel will go into captivity, into famine, and into pestilence, and less than 10% of us will survive. Just as less than 10% of the church will survive to build the latter temple. What goes around comes around. And we are about to be destroyed after this civil war, which has already started and will now escalate, and it is a race war. We not only oppressed the black people in our past history and finally turned them loose, but they're still living under conditions that are not good. We've made them citizens, but there's still a lot of racism and hatred between black and white. Is there not? Yes, there is. So they can't live in peace in this country, can they? You know what they're going to try to do? They're going to try to get rid of every one of us so they can. Now, we not only oppress them, but we have oppressed the whole world. We are the hammer of the whole earth, as Jeremiah 51 says. We're the one in Revelation 18 who is the main proponent of Babylon and the leader of Babylon today, the Babylonian Satan, satanic system. And we have beat up on and bombed and oppressed country after country after country. And yet we look upon ourselves as a Christian nation. Blasphemy. This nation is no more Christian than a tree. We have denied God. We've accepted evolution. We've taught everything against God. The churches are falling apart. And they don't even know who God is anyway. I'm not going to get to Ezekiel 5 today. But we'll get there next week, God willing. And we'll see, in plain black and white, God uh, itemized the things that are going to happen to this country based upon what Ezekiel did. That is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled since Ezekiel did it in Ezekiel 4. It has been being fulfilled for the last 430 years, and now that that 430 years has elapsed, almost immediately the civil war, essentially a race war, has commenced. And it will get more and more violent. I didn't get to Hosea and Amos, which I intended to do today, because it will further show this story. So I think I had better begin next week in Hosea and Amos, and then get to Ezekiel 5, because I have not finished this story. But that 4.30 can only apply to now. And events in this country show that it is in this country. It has to do with the history of this country. And it has to do with us repeating against others what was done to us those many years ago in the land of Mitzrayim. 
And we're going to get our tail in a crack very shortly now because of what we've done to Ham and to other nations of this world in hammering them to death. God has spoken, and it is His judgment, and we'll see it more clearly next week.